My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Sometimes, when you are a reporter doing streeters, which is heading out to meet regular folks with a camera and a mic, sometimes you just get lucky. Last week, a reporter with CHCH-TV caught the right person at the right time in front of the right St. Catherine's store to discuss Health Canada's new alcohol guidelines. Two drinks a week! What do you think of that? Well, that's just not uh, feasible, not in this country. Well, come on, man, two drinks a week, what's that going to do for you? I mean, that doesn't even get you through a day. This entire interview went viral, first because this fellow is tremendously entertaining, but also because an incredulous two drinks a week sums up a good chunk of the Canadian population's reaction. The science behind the guidelines is still science. And so if any amount of alcohol is bad for you, then yes, our government health agency should probably warn us. But if we have learned one thing, after almost three years of shutdowns and masks and gathering limits and playground closures and mandates and restrictions and everything else we've done to save lives during the COVID-19 pandemic, it's that how you communicate the science plays a big part in determining how people follow it or if they follow it at all. So what's actually in the new guidelines? What has changed about our relationship to alcohol over the past two years or even the past 20? Where should we be looking if we really want to curb drinking? And how helpful is it to say two drinks a week if a lot of us would prefer two drinks a night? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. David Sweener is the chairman of the advisory committee for the University of Ottawa's Centre for Health Law, Policy and Ethics. He spent decades working on policy related to things like tobacco and other stuff uh, Canadians like to consume when they probably shouldn't. Is that fair to say, David? Uh, yeah, I suppose that, that covers it. I want to start, and I'm, I'm not trying to start by being cheeky, but I wanted to ask you, there was... Uh, an interview that a local news station, CHCH, did with an LCBO customer about these new alcohol guidelines. Have you seen that? I have. What did you think of it? Uh, well, yeah, it reminds me of, uh, you know, I'm sitting here in my hometown of Port Hope. It reminds me of the people I grew up with and uh, what their reaction would be to things like this. Uh, and indeed, the reaction a lot of people had to uh, issues like uh, dealing with uh, cigarette smoking. Uh, so if you talked about things like restricting smoking in uh in places initially, including things like, you know, daycare centers, elevators, et cetera. People thought that was ridiculous. It got even worse when you talked about things like bars. Yeah. I had some friends who uh, would give me uh, an earful when I'd be back uh, back in town. It's not surprising. I mean, this is, you know, part, part of life for a lot of people. 
And I think it gets back to the basic public health principles of try to understand people's lived experience, meet them where they are, and empower them to make better decisions. And I, I think that clip showed that uh, you know, per- perhaps it wasn't very effective in the case of uh, that particular guy. So we're going to get to whether or not uh, these new guidelines for alcohol actually achieve that. But maybe first, because I don't want to rely on on the reporter and that entertaining gentleman to explain it to us. Can you can you quickly outline the new guidelines for Canadians' use of alcohol to us plainly? Uh, sure. I mean, the, the, the background to it is that our guidelines have been around for quite a long time. The evidence has moved on in terms of what are the risks from uh, alcohol use. Uh, We've got governments that have largely ignored this issue. I mean, I I think we can go so far as to say they've aggravated the problem when you look at the, you know, who's actually marketing the the alcohol and how they're marketing it and Hmm. making the money off it, et cetera. But we've seen other countries look at this and say, let's update the evidence. Let's try to give people better information about what are uh, reasonable low-risk drinking guidelines. Uh, So the UK, uh, France, the Netherlands, Australia have all updated their guidelines. And uh, Health Canada empowered the uh, Canadian Centre of Substance Abuse to uh, come out with uh, something to update our guidelines. This is a a group of alcohol experts uh, looking at the health effects. As they make clear, they're not looking at, you know, social aspects. You know, what are the trade-offs here about, you know, sure, there's things that are hazardous, but we're willing to do them. You know, Mm -hmm. that people don't take up playing football in high school because it uh, it doesn't cause injuries. Uh, They're willing to accept whatever the, the risks are. We accept risks on lots of things. So it's the idea of informed consent. How do you give people better information? They looked at all the the evidence. Uh, Their conclusion is that they don't think there's safe levels of consumption for alcohol, but there's low-risk levels of consumption. So what would happen if you tried to reduce the risk of lifetime uh, alcohol use to about one death in a thousand? You know, one in a thousand of us will end up dying of something caused because of our drinking. Uh, And to do that, they, they end up saying that we should consume no, no more than two drinks a week and that whatever you're drinking, you should try to drink less. Uh, and they have recommendations for certain things that we should do. Uh, and they include that the government should come up with measures to uh, strengthen regulations of alcohol advertising, marketing. Uh, they should restrict the availability of alcohol uh, because availability is uh, reflected in, in total consumption. There should be minimum pricing so that you don't get um, particularly cheap forms of alcohol available that uh, can facilitate uh, excess drinking. There should be information on standard drinks. And I think this one uh, should uh, resonate with, with, with everybody, regardless of alcoholic consumption. We keep talking about a standard drink, you know, this, this many standard drinks. But we don't know what a standard drink is. The, right. So how on earth are you supposed to, uh, to measure something like that? It's really like saying hey, uh, let's go out and we're going to run a distance. <laughs> yeah, we'll run till it feels like we've gone far enough. Yeah, that's right, exactly. Are we running a 100-meter dash or are we running an ultramarathon? Could, could you help me out here? Uh, you know, what, what's, what are we trying to accomplish? And, you know, we, we just don't know. Um, we can go into more detail on that. But they also say that there should be mandatory labels telling us how many standard drinks are, are in, a, in a bottle. But also health warnings, uh, telling people what the risks are. Right. Like cigarettes. Uh, yeah. And, and then also uh, nutritional labeling. Uh, and that would include things like uh, what's the, uh, the calorie count hmm. on, on alcohol, which again is an anomaly that uh, you know, we, we don't know what that is uh, when you, uh, you go somewhere to order a drink. So th- those are the recommendations that they have. And they go into great detail about 
what are the uh, the potential health risks? Um, what are the various diseases that can be caused? What impact uh, can it have? They try to wrestle with this uh, issue of whether drinking in moderation has a protective effect, with more evidence indicating that either it, it doesn't or it's, it's much less than what had previously been thought on things like heart disease, but really comes out with the message of, of saying drink less. And that's fair enough. And we're going to get into uh, how the messaging on that breaks down, whether it's been successful or whether those, those targets are achievable. But maybe first, for context, what do we know about Canadians' consumption of alcohol in general, particularly over the past few years as we've been dealing with COVID? Has it increased? Where do we sit? Sure. I mean, uh, alcohol consumption definitely went up uh, during COVID. Uh, that's not surprising. You know, when we tell people things like, uh, don't go outside, you uh, you can't even go to parks, it's illegal to uh, to go to beaches, uh, you can't have any social gatherings, uh, that, that are at least public, is it surprising that people stay home? And then they've allowed things like you can order alcohol to be delivered to your home. So we saw alcohol consumption go up, and we've now seen the data indicating that alcohol-caused fatalities went up. It was in the range of about 3,200 a year uh, prior to COVID. Uh, and by 2021, it was around 3,900 a year. So an additional 700 deaths a year directly caused by alcohol. You know, these are the hospital deaths because of alcohol poisoning, et cetera. So a a big increase in alcohol consumption and and a really significant worrisome increase in in the deaths caused by uh, alcohol consumption. Is that what's behind the change in these guidelines or is it just sort of driven by new research that we simply uh, didn't know last time? Alcohol has been this weird issue for, for a long time in that it's next to, to cigarette smoking, it's our leading cause of preventable death. It dwarfs the, the deaths that we have from, from other drugs. You know, all our talk about uh, opioid crises, which, I mean, is a huge problem, but alcohol dwarfs it. When we look at this historically, there's been very little done about it. You know, in fact, we've been liberalizing the rules on, on alcohol, you know, through our, through our lifetimes. And we get these reports from time to time saying we really ought to do something about this. And I've attended no end of meetings with, with public health people who say, this is my real interest. We really have to deal with alcohol. But very little happens. Uh, and then, you know, more reports like this one come out. So the, the, the death and the disease has been there. Uh, certainly the violence, uh, the car accidents, uh, the uh, spousal abuse, you know, all the problems associated with alcohol you know, any analysis of, of drug harms in a society in any Western country is going to say alcohol is by far and away the big one. So how do we deal with it? And I think this is a, an effort by, by Health Canada, which is hugely under-resourced to do anything on, on alcohol the way they used to be on, uh, on tobacco. They're probably over-resourced on tobacco now and hugely under-resourced on, on alcohol. I mean, they, they now have scientific documentation saying, here's the problem. Here's our idea of what you can do about it. Uh, here's suggestions in terms of policy, you know, over to you. And again, as I say, we've seen these before, and, and I saw these uh, early in my career on uh, cigarette smoking. You know, reports would come out, and then what happens? Do, do they get, you know, 15 minutes of fame, and then they gather dust? Or uh, do we actually see policy changes happening? Does the public buy into this? Do you get the support necessary for the, uh, the, the political uh, wherewithal to, uh, to do something? Before we get to the public reaction about guidelines for individuals, which I think is where a lot of the, uh, I don't know if controversy is the right word, but a lot of the blowback has come. Um, Let's talk about the recommendations for government. What do you think about the way, and you kind of mentioned this off the top, the way alcohol is currently marketed and displayed in Canada? Does it need to be scaled back? Is this part of the problem? 
Well, I mean, certainly if we're trying to send people messages that, you know, alcohol is our, our second largest cause of preventable death after cigarette smoking, let's look at, you know, what we did on, on cigarette smoking. That when I got involved in that one 40 years ago, and there were campaigns to try to tell people smoking was, was really hazardous. But advertising for cigarettes was everywhere. It was sports sponsorships. It was lifestyle ads. They were sponsoring cultural events. The packages were beautiful. Uh, they had campaigns for, for products that were low tar, not lower risk, but convinced the public they were lower risk as an alternative to quitting. Uh, we had cigarettes being sold in hospitals, uh, in sports centers, in uh, pharmacies, uh, we, we had no protection from secondhand smoke anywhere. I remember the battle I had with, with hospitals to try to get them to allow people to, to choose a smoke-free room if they're going to be sharing it with somebody. And, and the view, like, you know, no, like, why would we do that? You know, so the selling the stuff in, in stores next to the candy on the shelves and uh, tens of thousands of vending machines. Uh, how could anybody believe these things are really all that hazardous? When we look at alcohol now, we're in a fairly similar situation where they try to give us messages about how hazardous this is, but look at what the governments themselves are doing. You know, here in Ontario, look at a, a liquor control board store. You know, they went from something that, that was designed to control alcohol to, to, to way more stores, much larger, self-service, discounts, promotions, bright lights, wonderful uh, shelving. Uh, they give you air miles. They, they have glossy magazines promoting alcohol use. They give you tastes in some of them. Yeah. And so when I look at the stuff, I mean, I, I was involved in debating, regulating, and suing cigarette companies globally for uh, all, all through my career. And cigarette companies behaved in totally reprehensible ways in, in much of what they were doing. I don't think that what we see from, from uh, government entities is, is any less bad. I mean, when we look at the, the marketing of alcohol, but also things like lotteries and casinos, now sports betting, et cetera, governments are, are in, you know, up to their neck on making money off people with dependents. So what are we going to see in terms of the marketing here? You know, even with LCBO and, you know, other provincial um, entities that use these affinity cards, you know, the Aeroplan uh, points, whatever, they have really great information on who's buying alcohol. How much are they buying? You know, what type are they buying? Is there an escalation in their buying? Are there signs of uh, uh, developing dependence, et cetera, because of the quantity that they're buying? Are they passing that on to health people? You know, is that available to researchers? And, you know, apparently it isn't. They're just marketing it. So there, there's certainly an awful lot that could be done in terms of the, the marketing of this. And even things like within the LCBO and, and other such entities, you see the re result of how governments tax these products. So t beer is, is taxed largely on, on volume rather than on alcohol content, which is why you're going to pay as much for a low-alcohol beer as a high-alcohol beer. Why would we do that rather than have the tax, the price, reflect the, the alcohol content, the risk? Uh, there's some very good no-alcohol beers that are now available. But where are they? How do you make them available? How do you promote that? Governments have programs to try to encourage people to move to, say, electric cars. Why aren't they having things to facilitate a movement to lower alcohol or no-alcohol beverages just as an option for people to, uh, to find a way to reduce the risk? So there, there's an awful lot that they... They could be doing, and we don't even get discussions on it. You know, the, the tax on uh, microbrews. I mean, there's a lot of great microbrews out there, but their tax is only half the tax 
that's on uh, regular beer from the, the major brewers. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? What's the subsidy that we're giving there? How much taxpayer money is foregone per job created? Are these the jobs that you really want? You know, where's the discussion about, is that a good idea? Uh, you know, where should the tax be? How should it reflect risk? So there's an awful lot governments could do if they, if they were truly got interested in this. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now. You just mentioned taxes. And, you know, this is where I want to get into the reality of the situation. Is the government likely to do that when, you know, these pretty LCBOs and SAQs in Quebec and and all the rest uh, funnel a ton of money directly to the government? And presumably anything you do to make it harder to purchase stuff uh, at these places means less money for the government. Uh, there, there's certainly an issue there. And, and I think, uh, you know, in the case of Ontario, just the, the profits the LCBO passes on to, to the provincial government and the taxes that uh, the government gets on that alcohol being sold is somewhere in the range of $3 billion a year. You know, not to mention about $1.6 billion from lotteries and over a billion from, from cigarettes. So that, that's an awful lot of money coming in. You know, on the other hand, there's a hell of a lot of money going out in terms of all the expenditures, not just on things like healthcare, but lost productivity, the uh, reduced quality of life, et cetera, associated with these things. But often governments are, are, are very... Uh, Short-sighted? <laughs> yeah, saying that, you know, we can bring in a bunch of money right now, let's get another $100 million from alcohol, maybe we should let it uh, be sold in more places rather than thinking, what are our long-term goals? What, what should we actually be trying to accomplish as a society? Uh, should we actually be trying to uh, increase the amount of alcohol being consumed? Or should we be looking at how can we try to shape that consumption in ways that causes uh, reduced health risk? So let's talk about the public reaction to these guidelines then. Not everybody is maybe as outspoken as our gentleman from the top of the show. Um, but how have you seen, in general, the public reaction to this, uh, given that, you know, this is clearly a, a priority for um, health experts, doesn't seem to be reflected in the general public? Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, my uh, my knowledge of this is limited to the people I've been talking to. I, I haven't seen a lot of uh, polling. So it's just what's in the media, uh, what conversations I get into. Many people who are in public health and really concerned about alcohol think this is, you know, fantastic and it's great and we ought to just do this. A lot of the uh, the public is saying, what the heck? You know, what are you talking about here? Uh, some of the people who are more informed and have actually read through it but enjoy a glass of wine are saying things like, well, why are the low-risk guidelines, the new low-risk guidelines in places like the United Kingdom and Australia indicating a far higher level of safe consumption? You know, what's this two-drink-a-week uh, stuff when they're talking about you know, in, in the UK, you can have six pints uh, in a week, uh, which is, you know, a lot, lot more than uh, six drinks when you look at the size of a pint. Australia, the same. What are we really trying to accomplish? And and really quite credible people like Sir David Spiegelhalter at uh, Cambridge University, who in my view is probably the world's greatest expert on, on risk assessment, and saying that, yeah, if you try to get down to a, a risk of one in a hundred, 
for you know, lifetime risk of death from, uh, from alcohol use, you are talking about lower risk. I mean, but the UK sort of guidelines rather than the Canadian guidelines, which are talking about a, a risk of one in a thousand. But keep in mind that that risk of one in a hundred is about the same as the risk or slightly less than the risk of spending an hour a day watching television huh. or eating bacon sandwiches a couple of times a week. I mean, there's right. lots of things that we do that have risks. What's a reasonable trade-off? And I think that's why people are talking about risks and relative risks, that there are huge risks once uh, alcohol consumption goes beyond a, a certain level. You really see it escalate. Below that level, uh, which is probably consistent with the guidelines in places like the, the UK and Australia, which is you know, lower than the guidelines we used to have, below that, there, there's a risk. But, but for a lot of people, they'd say, that's an acceptable risk for me. You know, if I knock a couple of months off my life doing things I really enjoy doing, you know, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the really big challenge is what do you do for the people who are knocking years off their life or decades off their lives? You know, multiple decades when you look at the, the accidents and the poisonings among uh, uh, young people with uh, uh, alcohol abuse. Right. And, and that's a much harder one to, to deal with because that's really where the deaths are. The big risks are for people who are drinking a lot. Well, and this is where I want to get into the, the kind of, for want of a better term, like the buzzkill aspect of some of this messaging. Um, it's not unique to alcohol. This week, there is a new study that says bringing cake to the office can be as harmful as secondhand smoke to coworkers' health. And, you know, when you combine that story with uh, two drinks a week, you mentioned it off the top, and, and I want to come back to this phrase, is like, meet people where they are. And when you say that kind of stuff to me, and listen, you know, uh, like we mentioned before, I, I enjoy drinking. I also enjoy cake. Who doesn't? But, mm-hmm. like, it just turns me off. It makes me think that, well, this is not going to be achievable for me, so I'm done. And and this is a conversation that I've had with a lot of public health experts and epidemiologists around COVID during this pandemic and public health guidelines. You yeah. know, what they've said to me is like, when you put restrictions on people to the point where they feel they can't do anything, they just tune you out completely. So you really have to be judicious about giving people tasks they feel that they can achieve and will see some positive progression from it. And to me, it seems like this messaging was handled really poorly and a lot of people are doing exactly that, you know, just tuning it out. Yeah, I mean, in in defense of the people who put this to, uh, report together, they're scientists. And they don't write the headlines of these articles that, that are talked about it. That's right. But th- this is quite common in, in public health. Of the, the battle between people who are on a, a pragmatic agenda and people who are on an absolute agenda. So it's, it's really the difference between saying uh, you should get eight hours of sleep a night uh, and I know you're only getting five and you think you can up it to seven and a half, but, but damn it, that's not good enough. You got to get eight. Right. And somebody says, you know, I, I've got a young child, I've got a busy job, you know, et cetera. That's not reasonable to, to say to somebody who's uh, getting into New Year's resolutions or abandoning them about this time of year, the sort of stuff we often encounter in gyms of, you know, somebody who's got advice that all they have to do is lose 50 pounds, start working out every day, you know, take, <laughs> take up jogging, completely change their diet, et cetera. And they're going to do all that by February. Well, you know, you never see them in the gym again because it, it's, it's too much. So it is meet them where they are. And, you know, I've encountered this all through my career on, on issues of nicotine, where we know that nicotine itself is very low risk. Smoking cigarettes is huge risk. 
But many of the people who are battling cigarettes also think, but we don't want any risk. Therefore, we'll try to ban things like vaping. We won't tell people about alternative nicotine. We won't allow it on the market because there's still a risk Mm -hmm. rather than doing what we do on things like opioids to say, you know, if you can get a safer supply, you can get a clean needle, if you get a safe injection site, like better that you not use it at all. But if we induce your risk, you know, we're going to meet you where you are. We're going to offer you viable alternatives. Mm-hmm. Because in the absence of that, and this is what happens when we get into some of the, the health warnings, if you give people a scary message, but you don't give them clear, actionable steps about what they can do about it, they just cut you out because that, that's just cognitive dissonance. You know, if someone were to say, you know, hey, you know, everybody alive today is eventually going to die. And you could be somebody who dies in terrible pain, completely alone in a rain-sodden ditch somewhere. And we all crack up (laughs) because there's nothing we can do about it. So it's funny. We've dismissed it. That's cognitive dissonance. And the difference between that and saying something like, Hey, you know, I'm uh, I, I'm I'm a medical specialist. I noticed that mole there. That that to me looks like it's uh, the beginning of, of a cancer. Uh, you can deal with that. There's a clinic right over here. I know the doctor in charge. I'll introduce you. We can have that removed this afternoon. I mean, you've got somewhere to go. Uh, so if you just say it'll kill you, it'll kill you, it'll kill you, and you don't get perspective about what are your alternatives. So in this case, you know, not saying. Here are low alcohol beverages. Here are no alcohol beverages. Here's ways that you can reduce your overall consumption. And then to put it into context, where does risk get really high? So maybe you can't get down to two drinks a week, but what's the increased risk if you're having six drinks a week, you know, as opposed to somebody who's having six drinks a day? Mm-hmm. And do you lose people by, by not communicating that to say, you know, would I be willing to have an extra couple of, uh, of drinks during a week uh, if I gave up watching TV uh, for, uh, for a couple hours a day to uh, try to negate that. Right. Can you make a trade-off by working out a little bit and then rewarding yourself with a glass of wine or something? Yeah, that's right. And a lot of people are saying a risk is a risk is a risk. You don't get rid of that risk. Well, no, but you can do other things that reduce your risk for other, th- uh, other issues. You know, you might decide you want to eat French fries, but you will ride your bicycle to work on um, uh, some days. Right. And... Also, I think a really critical part of the advice that we give is, how is this going to play politically? Because none of this really matters if our politicians don't get engaged and come up with policies that actually start to address the, the, the real harms that are caused by alcohol use. And my fear is that if you push something that, that is seen as quite draconian, any politician is going to say, how do I endorse that? What happens to me the next time I'm running for election? And people saying, and you're the one who said I couldn't have any beer or only like you know, having a beer at hockey night in Canada or at a barbecue in the summertime is is, is a really bad idea. You know, <laughs> you, you don't get resonance there. And unless we do things to get political buy-in, and that's where the, the critical aspect of this, I think, is where's the advocacy? Where are the people who are making the case for practical things that we can do and putting pressure on governments to do it? And in the absence of that, I think reports like this just end up ga- gathering dust. Okay, so this is my last question then, and thank you so much for explaining this and walking us through the messaging. Um, Knowing that we're not going to be able to change the recommendations, like the science is the science, the amount of risk is the amount of risk. Um, If they had consulted you before publishing these, what's the main thing you would have told them? So I would have said, look at how this is likely to play with the public. Talk to experts in other countries who have dealt with things like this and have views that are quite different from yours. 
You know, so if Sir David Spiegelhalter is saying he doesn't think there's a big problem with with a moderate level of drinking that is above the guidelines here, you know, for heaven's sakes, talk to Sir David. There's nobody with more expertise. What's he saying? Uh, if you're trying to get people to to reduce their risk, what are the harm reduction options? You know, the, the former drug czar for the UK who has tremendous knowledge on alcohol says the, the way to go is that we've got to have drinks that can give people the buzz they get from alcohol without causing all the damage. And people at Imperial College in, in the UK have been working on developing these. Well, why aren't we doing things like that to say, yeah, you know, if you want to feel a little bit tipsy but not destroy your liver, there, there's something you can get. Uh, there's something there where you don't get drunk, you don't get violent, you don't get a hangover. Is it possible to have something like that? I think that would resonate with the, the public. But you've certainly got to, to have messages that people can understand and go with the strong ones and things like, what's the standard drink? Right. That's a winner. Yeah, I would like to know that. Yes, yeah, me too. And, and you know, I... I have friends who are like world experts on alcohol. We go to, to a restaurant, there's something on the menu. They have to pull out their phone to get to their pocket calculator to calculate the standard drinks. They don't know looking at it. You have to go on the internet to find out what's the alcohol content. I've used those drink programs to track my drinking yeah. um, just to make sure. This was before these guidelines came out. Yeah. Um, and like you have to input the volume of the drink, the alcohol content of the drink, and yeah. then you get back that like, oh, that beer you're having is actually 1.24 yeah. standard yeah. drinks, which is yeah. nuts. Yes, and, and, and how many people are willing to use something like that? I quit using it. <laughs> yes. Well, and if the people who are using it, how many of them are truly problem drinkers? So the people who are drinking alcohol at a, at a level that really is problematic, you know, they're not, they're not doing those calculations. They don't know. The people who are with them, the people who are serving them, their spouses, they do not know. So a standard drink, definitely things like calorie count. I mean, people who don't think their drinks have calories and are wondering why they can't lose weight, hmm. you know, give information on things like that. Those are absolute winners. And then looking at what health information can you give, what alternatives can you give, have a discussion on tax policy that why aren't we taxing the way New Zealand started many years ago on, on the basis of alcohol content so that the more alcohol, the higher the tax, the higher the price. So that if it's a summer day and you feel like a beer, you're going to pay less for a beer that's 2% alcohol rather than one that's 7% alcohol. Hmm. You can shape behavior in ways like that. So I think there's a lot of winning strategies that, that you could have, but it really comes down to at what point do the, the public health people decide to engage in the sort of hard-nosed advocacy that I did on, on cigarette smoking back through the uh, 80s and 90s, that it, it doesn't work if you just say, you know, here's some information, we'll send it to the government. And we assume that because, you know, senior politicians have nothing else to do with their time, they're going to read this long report and they're going to make the right decision. They're going to do the right thing for Canadians. And, and we don't have to worry about whatever lobby and arguments are going to come from the alcohol industry and the LCBO and all those sorts of people. I mean, the world just doesn't work like that. So, you know, governments, in my experience, are like a hockey puck. They don't go up and down the ice on their own. It's a matter of fielding a team hmm. and the, the team pushing in the direction of, of liberalized uh, access to alcohol, lifestyle ads for alcohol is pretty strong. Where's the public health team fighting back and getting the public on side? And uh, again, my you know war stories and when I first went to talk to finance people about cigarette taxes back in the early 80s, and they said, you know, essentially, thank God there's finally somebody here from the health side talking to us about cigarette taxes. We only ever hear from the cigarette companies, followed by and do you have a health person who can come and talk to us about alcohol taxes? Because we know that's even more messed up than cigarette taxes. Hmm. And there wasn't. 
and there isn't, and there never has been. I mean, they're just not doing those sorts of things. So I think unless the, the public health community you know, gets off the viewing stands and onto the field that we're not going to see very much happen here. And, and I think that's tragic because there's it, just so much that could happen. David, thank you for this. Uh, it's a better look into these regulations than I've seen uh, from any level of government. Great chatting with you. David Sweener of the University of Ottawa's Center for Health Law, Policy and Ethics. That was The Big Story. If you'd like more, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. If you want to tell us what you think of the new guidelines, you can find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. You can email us, hello, at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. You can call us and rant, 416-935-5935. If you do a better job than the fellow in the intro, which I'm not sure is possible, I promise I will play it. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.